Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, gang, it would be hard, in my opinion, to find a more annoying cliche or platitude than self-love. It's the kind of bathos that is bleated at us by spin instructors and Instagram influencers. It seems empty and inactionable. And even if you could make it work, I think many of us suspect it would lead to complacent resignation or unbridled narcissism. In fact, though, there is an enormous amount of evidence that self-love, or as scientists call it, self-compassion, can make you more effective in reaching your goals, and it can lead to better relationships with everybody around you. We are releasing this episode on World Mental Health Day, which is also the day when my new and first TED Talk is being released. And said TED Talk is all about the relationship between loving yourself and loving others. In it, I tell the mortifying story of a devastating 360 review I received a few years ago for the uninitiated. A 360 review is an anonymous survey with the people in your life, and it's designed to reveal your strengths and I think perhaps more importantly, your weaknesses. In the talk, I lay out how this mortifying experience led me to come up with what I semi-facetiously call my unified field theory of love. Here's a quick clip. That's a deliberately ridiculous name, but I, I am actually pretty serious about using the word love. Granted, it's a confusing term because we use it to apply to everything from our spouses to our children to you know, uh, gluten-free snickerdoodles. But, but, but I am comfortable embracing the broadness of the term. I consider love to be anything that falls within the human capacity to care, a capacity wired deeply into us via evolution. It's our ability to care, cooperate, and communicate that has allowed homo sapiens to thrive. And it is a failure to exercise that muscle. It is a lack of love that I think is at the root of our most pressing problems, from inequality to violence to the climate crisis. Obviously, these are all massive problems that are going to require massive structural change. But at a baseline, they also require us to care about one another. And it is harder to do that when you're stuck in a ceaseless spiral of self-centered self-flagellation. Thank you. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is there's a geopolitical case for you to get your shit together. <laughs> and the massively empowering news is that love is not an unalterable factory setting. It is a skill that you can train. It's actually a family of skills. So that's a, a little bit of the talk. I would love it if you would go watch the whole thing. We put a link in the show notes. In fact, if you really want to do me a solid, you can share it as widely as possible. This idea that love, both self-love and other love, is a skill as opposed to a factory setting is an idea that I think can have a massively positive impact if disseminated widely enough. And the person who I think has perhaps done the most of anybody in the West to promote this idea is my friend, the great meditation teacher, Sharon Salzberg. So in honor of World Mental Health Day and in honor of the launch of my TED Talk, I wanted to bring Sharon on to take a deep dive into these issues. In this conversation, we talk about the definition of self-hatred and why it's so widespread in the West, the real practical benefits of self-compassion, 
whether there's a difference between self-compassion and self-love, why many people so fiercely resist the idea of self-love, the distinction between empathy and compassion and how they work together in Buddhism, how to have loving kindness or compassion for somebody who doesn't feel we have the right to exist, reclaiming words that are often relegated to cliches such as love and happiness, and how generosity makes us more whole. For anybody who's unfamiliar with Sharon, here's her little bio. She's a meditation pioneer, world-renowned teacher, and New York Times bestselling author. She was one of the first people to bring mindfulness and loving-kindness meditation to mainstream American culture about 45 years ago, inspiring generations of meditation teachers and wellness influencers. Sharon is co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, and the author of 12 books, including the New York Times bestseller, Real Happiness, now in its second edition, and her seminal work, Loving Kindness. Her podcast, The Meta Hour, has amassed 5 million downloads and features interviews with thought leaders from the mindfulness movement and beyond. Okay, we'll get started with Sharon Salzberg right after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Sharon Salzberg, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. I thought it would make sense to start with the classic story of you asking His Holiness the Dalai Lama about self-hatred. Can you tell that story? Certainly. Um, sometimes I hear other people tell the story, and 
It's quite funny because I think that was me. (laughs) (laughs) I can't remember if it was 1990, 1989. I was at a very small conference in Dharamsala, India, with His Holiness and a bunch of psychologists and scholars. And I had the opportunity to ask him a question. So I said, Your Holiness, what do you think about self-hatred? And he said, what's that? And it was this look on his face he gets when he's like really puzzled, you know, like, I don't get it. And uh, it was so interesting because all these Westerners were like jumping up and down and saying, it's this, it's that, it's that, it's that. And, and he was saying, is it some kind of nervous disorder? And are people like that very violent? And people in the room were saying, no, it's us. It's like all of us. And he didn't quite get it. And not to deify that culture because it is a culture like any other culture with a lot of flaws. And yet, I think that rock bottom belief of what you will discover if you go underneath your personality and underneath your habits, what do you find? And it's very different. And he kept saying, the Dalai Lama kept saying, but you've got Buddha nature. How can you think of yourself that way? Like, you know, because from that position, culturally, you know, when you go that deep, you discover capacity, you discover potential, not fully realized potential, but potential. The most fascinating part to me was when we took a tea break, and some of his translators were Western. And so they took the opportunity to gather around him and say, you know, this is the filter through which we tend to hear the teachings. And so when we hear a very common English phrase in translation of Tibetan texts is, give up all self-cherishing, by which they mean self-preoccupation and selfishness, but it doesn't sound that way. It sounds like give up all caring about yourself and So they say, when we hear a phrase like give up all self-cherishing, which you hear endlessly in that context, this is what we hear. And it was fascinating just to watch that process of that distillation of of the meaning of these cultures. Do you think self-hatred is uniquely Western, that in Asian cultures they don't have it? I think they have plenty going on that's not that good, you know, like for sure as anybody would, everywhere, ultimately. But I think it is different. Like, when the Dalai Lama came here to the Insight Meditation Society, it was 1979. I think it might have been his first trip, if not to North America, then certainly to the area. Bob Thurman was still in Amherst College, not that far away, and invited him to come teach. They were quite old friends at that point. And we were, like, brash and young and innocent and We heard he was coming to the area, so we wrote a letter to the private office, and we said, wouldn't he like to come here too? And then we got a letter back saying, yes, he would. So that was like a total madhouse, and, you know, the police blocking Pleasant Street, the road that the center is on, and state troopers patrolling the roof with guns, and, you know, it was outrageous. And we had a retreat happening, so we lined up outside, so the Dalai Lama gave him lunch. He went bowling in the one-lane bowling alley. The Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament left to us. And then he, we brought him into the meditation hall to give a talk, which is still available, by the way, on Dharma Seed. And then he asked for questions. And some young man, he'd been sitting maybe for two weeks at that point, raised his hand. And he said, basically, I realize I can't do it. This isn't going to work for me. It might work for other people, but I just don't have the ability to concentrate or to get deeper. I, I just can't do it. And the dilemma got that same look on his face, you know, like, and, and he said, you're just wrong. You're wrong. 
And he went into the thing about Buddha nature. And it's interesting because all these people came up to me afterwards and said, he was wrong to say that. You should never tell anyone they're wrong. And it's bad pedagogy. And But the young man himself, he didn't mind at all like being told he was wrong. And, and he was wrong, you know, from that perspective. So I get that in Tibet, the view is underneath all of our idiosyncrasies, all of our unwholesome qualities, there is what they refer to as Buddha nature, this inherent goodness. And actually, we might talk about it because I, I don't know that all Buddhists believe that's true. But I guess what I'm trying to f establish now is whether this self-hatred that seems really common, maybe self-hatred is too strong a word, but self-criticism, self-judgment, being hard on yourself seems extremely common, at least in the West. I'm tempted to believe that that's just a universal human attribute, but maybe not? No, I think it could be seen as a universal attribute. Because I, when I say self-hatred, I think I mean something a little more than that. I think, I mean, there's so many personal conditions in your family or in that culture, you know, your teacher, like how they treat you. And, but there's something about, it's almost a kind of hopelessness or despair when you think, for what? You know, like, if I don't have the capacity to change, if I don't have an ability to, we see it a little bit in the West, like when people seem to feel like loving kindness or compassion as qualities, they're like a gift and you either have it or you don't. And the idea, that's why Richie Davidson will say one of the really controversial things he has said and posited is that it's trainable. You can actually train to be more compassionate than you are. And that's outrageous here somehow. Whereas it wouldn't be seen as outrageous there. I mean, you might feel, I don't got much going or, you know, I'm not good at this. Or I think that would be naturally human. But the idea that this is for naught, you know, like what difference can this make? That, that I don't think you would see so much. So in the East, it's uncontroversial to think at the very least, my mind is trainable. Yeah, yeah. So it's worth unpacking, I guess, because... It sounds to me like maybe you have a very specific meaning of self-hatred and that it's different from the kind of being hard on ourselves or the way I've often described it is the liberal use of the internal cattle prod that many of us <laughs> believe we need in order to get anything done. It sounds to me perhaps that you, that you think self-hatred is something deeper and more pernicious. I do think it's deeper and more pernicious. And I I try to describe it. It's hard to find the word sometimes. Instead of self-criticism, I, I might say incessant, merciless, harsh, harsh self-criticism. Because there's a degree to which I think, I don't think you could say it only is found in the West and is never found in the East, but I think you'd see a predominance based on those beliefs, you know, of who we actually are. I'm sure you hear this argument all the time, because I do. When people say to you, if I don't use the internal cattle prod, if I'm not ruthlessly hard on myself, I will be forever on the couch. I will never get anything done. Well, I'm looking forward to the, the furtherance of the research, you know, which I am given to understand. I'm not a scientist. What I've heard is that a kind of harsh, punitive environment, either internal or external, will spike people's performance, but briefly, and then we crash. So I think when we look at what does it take to make a sustained effort, what does it take to stick to something, to really make change, to learn something new, it's not actually going to be that quality of merciless, incessant 
punishing self-criticism that's going to do it for us, that oddly enough, it is something like self-compassion that is the most efficient, effective way to actually make change. And I think the studies are, are bearing that out. To your mind, is there a difference between self-compassion and self-love? No, I mean, we can argue the difference between those words. And in any case, you know, like uh, Barbara Fredrickson, who's one of the researchers in the University of North Carolina studying loving kindness, and she has for years, she once said, compassion is love that's looking at suffering. So you could say it's like the same quality, but it's gazing upon a different aspect of human existence. Yeah, I mean, in giving this TED Talk that I gave recently and in working on this book that the that the TED Talk material is a preview of, I've been kind of hung up on some linguistic issues that I've actually been meaning to ask you about, so here's my opportunity, which is that in both Buddhism and in modern science, there are lots of terms for positive qualities. So in science, they study civility, they study niceness, kindness, generosity, gratitude, compassion, empathy. And in Buddhism, we practice many of the same qualities. To me, the term that I'm using, but I'd be curious to hear from you whether you think it makes sense, the term I'm using to describe all of them is love. It's beautiful, but I think of that more as poetic than necessarily <laughs> rigorously scientific. I don't know. I'd have to ask. I mean, I just think of love as just our evolutionarily wired capacity to care about ourselves and others. So all of those positive qualities that scientists are studying and Buddhists are practicing just seem to fall right under that. You could do that. I mean, there are ways in which if you look at Buddhism and you look at those teachings with all the lists, you know, there are many times when you get to feeling, well, this whole list of 10 paramis, 10 perfections could be condensed into one. But you could do that with generosity. You could say they're all parts of generosity. They're all parts of gratitude. They're all parts of equanimity. But I, I would take love. I'm not, I like that. <laughs> 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 Too bad I just finished my book. <laughs> <laughs> so is the opposite of self, I feel like there's this self-love industrial complex that largely lives on Instagram and filled with all of these influencers telling us you got to love yourself. And, you know, it's like the kind of slogan that gets knit onto throw pillows. And so people are in exhorting us to love ourselves all the time. But what, when you think about self-love, what do you think it actually means aside from the slogans, which might be empty or not helpful? Well, I tend to think of the opposite of self-hatred being more like self-compassion, which I think is a little different. Because, well, first, you know, in general, I think evolutionary biologists would tell us we have a negativity bias, that we're likely to walk into a room where we're about to give a TED Talk and we see threat. We see danger. We see that person who looks like they're in a bad mood. You know, we don't think about the glory of it all, you know, or, or the beauty of it all. That's just not where our attention tends to go, just from centuries of habit. So it takes intentionality. And that's an interesting concept. It's not, not force, not coercion, not violence. It takes intentionality to say, what else is going on in this room? You know, what do I have to be grateful for? What do I have that's good? So in that sense, self-love 
would play a part, but self-compassion tends to play a part in the times when we've blown it, when you've gotten up on that stage and you trip, you know, or you can't remember the word for the life of you. Those are the times we need self-compassion. It's a little different than just appreciating ourselves. It's really a kind of tenderness or admission of vulnerability and care rather than condemnation. And it's also in that moment, if you look at, you know, again, Kristin F for people like who really study self-compassion, um, it, it's some sense that you're not alone. It's not just you. It's never just you. It's never just me. It's never just us. You know, these are universal qualities. We fall down. We make mistakes. We're flawed. And But we have this ability, this amazing ability to pick ourselves up and start over. And, and um, you know, we we get so intense and fierce in, in the condemnation that we we forget the rest. But if we are practicing for greater self-compassion, we tend to remember the rest. And we can switch, you know, we can we can move back to a more resilient state. So I think self-compassion is actually more the opposite. And that's confusing, you know, like a lot of people think it's laziness and that they're gonna lose their edge and they're gonna lose their creative um impetus and, and they're gonna lose their ambition. And I don't think any of that's true. Why not? Because I haven't seen that. I've seen that it's not true. <laughs> We've had many guests on the show talk about the difference between an inner drill sergeant and an inner coach. What do you think it would be more effective, internally or externally, having somebody scream at you expletives or somebody who really cares about you give you tough but caring feedback? Yeah. I mean, especially if you're thinking long term, you're thinking real change, for example, you know, rather than a kind of scared, reactive bolt out of the room, you know, to try to make it better. Well, when I think of people's resistance to self-love, self-compassion, and and again, this is a semantic thing, but I kind of think of self-compassion as just an aspect of self-love. I don't think of self-love reductively as just appreciating yourself. It's caring about yourself, and that can be caring about your suffering, which would be self-compassion. But when we think about why people resist it, aside from the fact that it can seem corny, what about the, and I'm sure you've heard this a million times, the fear that if I get into this self-love thing or self-compassion thing, it's going to be selfish? Well, I mean, that definitely is a common thread in people's ideas. You know, even if you suggest somebody sit for, you know, 13 minutes a day, in meditation, that I can't. You know, my to-do list is outrageous. I have, I have to take care of everybody else. It's too selfish to take 13 minutes a day for myself. But of course, we also know better. One of the really interesting areas of study, as you know, I'm sure, is the, the distinction between empathy and compassion. And it always interested me because you can see in the world the coldness and the cruelty of, of a lack of empathy. And we certainly see it. And so I used to really just celebrate and applaud like all these efforts to do empathy training and in these various arenas. And empathy in this sense, I think, really tends to mean that kind of resonance, you know, that felt sense of what someone is likely going through, especially if they're it seems tough, you know, that things seem hard. And but I was working and have worked and still work with a lot of people who are like frontline medical personnel or first responders or caregivers and various institutional settings or in their family. And and I kept thinking, these people have plenty of empathy. You know, they're burning out for some other reason. 
And and that was when the distinction came between, in a way, you could say a lot of people in those roles, and we play those roles sometimes just in friendship. People will say, can I qualify to come to your course for caregivers? Like somehow every single friendship I have ends up with me taking care of people. It's just what I do. Anytime it's easier to give than receive, and we're kind of in that role. And so, you know, there's a certain imbalance. Maybe we can offer loving kindness to others far more easily than receive it, you know, or accept it for ourselves. Or maybe we have tremendous care about someone's situation and not a lot of wisdom. Like there are limitations on what I can do, or there's, you know, I'm not in charge of this universe. Too bad, really. Or it's not all going to work out on my timetable. I can't be this impatient or... You know, and those are the things that really help in burnout much more than getting more deeply, you know, empathetic. It doesn't make a difference. We're already there. And so compassion, just to finish that model, would be more defined as the, well, it's in, in Buddhist, some Buddhist psychology, it's a two-part definition. One part is the empathy. It's like the trembling or the quivering of the heart in response to seeing pain or suffering. And then the second part is the compassion part. It's a movement of the heart, a movement toward, not into, but toward the suffering to see if we can be of help. Not to kind of go in with a savior complex, but to see if we could be of help. So there's a lot of balance that's sort of built in to the definition. It's, it's actually a hard state to understand, I think. But it's all there right there, you know, that... We tend to need something. We need wisdom. We need understanding. We need understanding of limits. We need an ability to receive as well as to give for it to be a, a kind of more full-on state that actually is going to make a, a very big difference. When it comes to this fear that that somehow self-compassion or self-love, it might be selfish, do you believe there is a connection between and I know this is tricky territory, and, I've, I, and you've written about it. But is there a connection between being able to be okay with yourself, okay with your own suffering, and to love yourself, properly understood love in the most sort of broad, capacious understanding of that term, and your ability to love other people? Is there a connection there? Well, there is some connection. You know, I don't... I don't tend to be one of the people who believe this is like a one-on-one equivalence that you cannot love others until you love yourself perfectly. That's a long haul, you know, perhaps, or, or a hard road. And I just know so many people who do love other people far more uh, than they love themselves. But the imbalance is never helpful when it's really vast. And I think at some point we have to include ourselves. We can't leave ourselves out altogether and expect that. It's going to be like a wholesome, that it's really going to be love, for that matter. It becomes a different kind of exchange. You know, it's much more transactional. It's much more frustrated. Why aren't you getting better? You know, I've decided. You had till Tuesday, and it's like already Monday, you know. And it doesn't have to be that way, but it's hard. You know, like as you're asking these questions or as you're speaking, I keep thinking about the conditioning we have about how were we brought up to believe this is what a strong person looks like. This is what a kind of complete person looks like and accomplished and highly regarded. You know, what do you have to do? And then the further questions, you know, like, how alone are we really? Like, is it really as isolating as it seems, you know, life? Or are we connected in different ways? And so that's why we pay attention is to 
actually see those things. So the trope that you can't love other people until you love yourself is just demonstrably untrue. As you've said, we all know people who uh, are incredibly loving, even though they may be really hard on themselves. However, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's not helpful to be self-loathing. In fact, you'd probably be even better at loving other people if you could have some inner okayness. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. And, and it would last longer and there would be fewer strings attached. I think it would be more like a kind of generosity of the spirit. Coming up, Sharon talks about why she prefers the term basic okayness instead of basic goodness or Buddha nature. She'll also talk about love as an ability and a responsibility and our cultural confusion about how to define the word love after this. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I consider you to be really the premier purveyor of loving kindness meditation or metta meditation in the West. I had done some loving kindness retreats with you, but I went on one, the longest one I'd ever been on with another teacher named Spring Washam. And there was a moment where I realized that 
all of the demons, my own demons, the parts of my personality that I disliked the most and was really struggling against. I, th I thought I was being mindful of them, but I realized when I was on this retreat, flooding the mind with this somewhat artificial warmth. In other words, you know, I'm, you know, you're repeating these phrases of may you be happy, may you be healthy all day long, and it can feel a little artificial, but day seven or eight of this, the mind is really suffused with this friendliness. And I thought, you know, I was being reasonably mindful when my anger or selfishness would come up in my mind. But I realized at this key moment in this retreat that my mindfulness had this heretofore unseen aversive flick. I didn't really want to be okay with the uglier parts of my personality. But in this container where the mind was suffused, as I said, with warmth, I could see that my anger, my acquisitiveness were really just ancient programs that were the organism trying to protect itself. And um, once I saw that, I started to be much easier on myself. And I think that inexorably led to me being less judgmental of other people's stuff. And so that, to me, is, as I understand it, like part of at least the connection between self-love and other love. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think what you had said earlier, I think, has layers and layers and layers to it. It's like, it's hard for us to admit even the pain of what some of the things we feel are evoking in us. You know, it's like we're so trained to avoid pain and and consider it sort of dishonorable. Like if we'd been in control, like we're supposed to be, it wouldn't hurt. You know, and that's just off. That's way off. And so to admit that we hurt is hard and to allow kind of the presence of whatever feeling may be arising is hard and to hang in there with it and not make it worse, not make it hurt worse by hating it, you know, and adding shame and guilt and all of those other things. And then, um, you know, to be able to extend, I mean, that's what's so confusing. It takes, a, I think, a deep exploration, and that's good, of what loving kindness actually means or what love actually means. Because it can't mean, like, succumbing, right? Like, I'm going to love my jealousy or my pettiness or my inability to give anybody anything, you know, my hoarding, you know, whatever, and thereby let it triumph, you know, and rule my life. That, that doesn't make any sense. Or people ask me all the time now, why should I have loving kindness for somebody who doesn't even feel I have the right to exist because of whatever, you know, race or gender or gender orientation or sexual preference or whatever? And it's a very interesting question. It's an important question. And it begins with deciding what you mean by love or loving kindness, because if it means acquiescence or subjugation and extolling and praise the other, when you really think they're incredibly harmful and damaging, it makes no sense to get up earlier, even earlier in the morning, you know, to do 15 minutes of loving kindness practice. Like, why? But if it means something else to you, you know, some glimpse of a truer, deeper connection, that's just reality. Or the thing I say to myself all the time, and I say to people in response, is I keep coming back to um, them saying in the teachings, the Buddha taught, first taught loving-kindness practice as the antidote to fear. And I say that over and over again to myself and to others. And then I think, well, if it's the antidote to fear with this relationship, say my relationship to this person who's trying to define me, 
in some way, would that be enhanced by having a little less fear? And it's like, yes, you know, that's a good thing. Let's let's go there. Something that's happened for me, and I, I want to run this by you to see if it makes sense, is the more I've practiced love and kindness, the more I've developed a sense of okayness with my own demons, the less judgmental I am of other people's demons. You know, like for me, the I would say the number one most difficult person for me is Trump. And I'm not like cool with some of the things he's done. I'm not acquiescing to it. But part of me can at least imagine that if I had those parents and that kind of both the nature and the nurture side, it's entirely possible I would behave in the exact same ways he has. And that's not, it doesn't feel great to contemplate that, but it feels better than blind rage. How does that sound to you? Well, I think it's better not only because it feels better, but because it's more true. It's like coming closer to the reality of life. Like we are strongly conditioned. Look at it. Infancy, you know, like helpless, this little baby. So subject to the actions and intentions of those around them. And it doesn't take a, a deep dive into looking at that family, you know, like to see how it happened. And what's hard for us, I think, or even harder for us, is the fact that often people who are, in our eyes, creating the most damage in the world because of their position don't look like they're suffering. They look pretty self-satisfied and yes. smug. Yes. You think, damn, yes. you know? Yes. Like, and I, I was asked that once, and I was in a stage in Berkeley with, for some reason, there were like dozens of other teachers also on the stage. And someone asked that question, like he said, I have a really hard time. It's like, I know for myself, if I look within, that I am reckless, that I say things that are hurtful, that I do things that are hurtful when I myself am in a place of pain. But he said, but I look at some of these political leaders and I don't see the pain. It's really hard for me. What do you think? And there was like, really, there must have been like 20 of us on the stage and no one said a word because <laughs> no one wanted to answer the question. <laughs> Finally, I answered it. I said, I'm with you, you know. I said, I, I look at people and I think if they can only fray a little bit around the edges, you know, like, and I could glimpse the suffering, I know that compassion would be there. Which is another question. Compassion doesn't mean weakness. You know, that doesn't mean not doing anything to try to make change. But anyway, I said, I know the compassion would be there, but I just keep coming back to using myself as a laboratory, which is what I got used to through meditation. If it's true for me that those actions and that speech comes out of a place of pain, I would think it's very likely true for these other people as well. You know, so even though they don't show it, I also believe, and this came really directly, I think, from my exposure to Buddhism, I believe that we can live lives that aren't just mediocre, kind of getting by and just okay. We can, it's breathtaking what a human being in terms of kindness and intelligence and connection and caring can do. And people do it every day. Very uncelebrated, unheralded people every single day. I mean, you know, when you go visit that hospice, you know, it's happening and we are capable of so much. And then you think that's what you chose. That's how you chose to relate to people. No wonder no one likes you, you know? Like, and look at how alone that seems. And it doesn't look that attractive. Father Gregory Boyle was on the show recently. And he said something to me that really stuck with me, which is that we were talking about whether evil exists. And he said, I, I believe 
in horrible behavior, but not evil or horrible people. And when somebody's doing things so consistently, acting in antisocial, unhelpful ways, you need to think about it not as good and evil, but as healthy or unhealthy. Yeah. But so since we're talking about evil here, or perhaps it's non-existence, let's just go back to Buddha nature for a second, because we, we started there. The idea in some schools of Buddhism that underneath it all, we are essentially good. Have you seen evidence to that effect? And what would a counter argument be? <laughs> I don't quite go there. I'm a little bit more in the Dan Harris school of, I mean, I'm a New Yorker, you know, born and bred. I'm like, I don't know. And in fact, even my teacher, Sonny Rupache, he doesn't say basic goodness, which is the common translation. He'll say basic okayness. You know, there's something okay, there's something whole, there's something fulfilled. And I don't even go there. I just talk about capacity. I think of it as potential, this huge, huge, unrealized, often unrealized potential that exists no matter what. And we that's what we did not do something to deserve. That's like our birthright. If we're born, we have the potential to grow, to change, to get wiser, to get more loving. And it's hard to find that potential. It's hard to trust it. It's way covered over for most of us, but it's there. And that's the basis upon which we practice meditation, because if there was no capacity to grow, it's like, why bother? You know, so there's a sort of sneaky reference to it in that sense. It's very implicit, but basic goodness is a little hard to come by when you see, like, you think about Gregory Doyle and the people he works with, he has a right to be talking about evil, you know, and evil actions. And it makes sense that people can do some amazing things that are just horrible to one another, as well as merciful and generous and so on. So I like basic okayness better than basic goodness, and I like capacity better than them all. And yet, in one of your books, I believe it was it was either The Kindness Handbook or Real Love, you talked about these studies of infants who, given the opportunity to help somebody, will take it, which does seem to support basic goodness. Yeah, well, it's an ability, I think, that is... This also could be a play on words. I like ability, you know, love is an ability. In fact, when I was working on Real Love, which was a couple of books ago, and uh, I turned it in, and the editor of that book said, you haven't finished it, you have to finish it. And I said, I finished it, that's why I turned it in. <laughs> he said, no, no, you didn't really finish it, you told some story, and you drifted off somewhere into the ozone, which is my habit. And uh, one of the theses of that book is actually based on this line, from this movie, Dan, in real life, in which Peter Hedges, who wrote it and directed it, said, um, love is not a feeling, it's an ability. And of course, love is a feeling. It's a feeling we tend to crave quite a bit. But think of it as an ability, then it's not in someone else's hands. It's within us, and other people may ignite it or help nurture it or threaten it. But ultimately, it's in us. It's ours. And I used to get this image of like the UPS person standing at the doorstep with his package in his hand, because there's a feeling it's also a little bit like a commodity. And you have it or you don't. So I used to see him, like with his package of love, glancing down at the address and thinking, no, I don't think so, and going off into the distance. And I'd be like, wait a minute, then I have nothing. You've now taken all love out of my life. But if it's inside me, it's inside me. And I may be you know, enriched by the presence of others, say, but ultimately it's mine. And so... That was a really important basis of the book. And then I couldn't finish it, apparently. 
And then the, the 2016 presidential election happened, and I finished in 15 minutes. <laughs> because it seemed to me that if love is an ability, it's also probably a responsibility. If I want love present in a conversation, maybe I have to bring it in. If I want it in a room as a consideration, maybe I have to be the one. No one else maybe is going to do it. And so I like the ability-responsibility link. So I keep coming back to that. How do you define love? As a profound sense of connection. So it may not be emotional at all even, but it's those moments of inclusion, those moments of knowing, of clear seeing. It's like, you know, if you have a lot of assumptions about somebody and they're not even based on your own experience, but what you've heard about them, for example, and you realize I'm not listening to this person, I'm not really looking at them, and you actually stop that, just being enmeshed in those those thoughts, and you listen, and you realize they're surprising. They're not quite the person I thought they were. And in that moment, something inside you relaxes, and you're really there. I would call that love. You may not then say, I'm going to, you know, see you every night for the next month. You may never see them again, but I don't think it, it demands a certain kind of action or activity, but it's that moment of being that connected. It's such a fraught term, and you write about this in real love, because we associate the word love either with, well, I talk about this in, at, at TED, too, that we think of it as romantic love, familial love, or we use the word to describe our attitude toward gluten-free snickerdoodles. So it, it creates this enormous amount of confusion about what love is, whereas the Greeks had different names for different types of love, familial love, friendship love, love for all humans. Anyway, yeah, please pick up the thread in terms of our cultural confusion about this concept. Well, it's very confusing for all those reasons that you just named. It can seem so sentimental. It can seem so superficial. But there are a lot of things like that. You know, the word happiness, which happens to figure in a lot of my book titles. You know, it's also confusing people say, well, that's just like endless pleasure-seeking. And so how about if we redefine happiness? And what about the word faith, you know, and the ways it's come to just mean belief or even dogma? And, you know, there's so many things lost to us in a way because of what the words have come to mean. And I realize I like claim, I like reclaiming words as part of what I do, you know. And the love thing, and love itself, it's a confusing, confusing term. It can mean exchange, it can mean romance, it can mean sentimentality, it can mean I like that cookie. Yes, I think both of us share the agenda, and I probably just stole it from you to nudge <laughs> us toward a broader understanding of this word. Yeah. It can mean all of those things, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Coming up, Sharon talks about loving kindness as the antidote to fear the connection between loving ourselves and loving other people, and how she feels having just turned 70 years old. After this. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. 
and it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. They showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&Ms, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. Let me go back to something you said earlier because I made a note of wanting to hear more about this. You'd said that the Buddha initially taught loving kindness Metta, M-E-T-T-A, sort of friendliness meditation, this form of meditation where you we systematically send good wishes to all sorts of beings, including ourselves. You said he taught this initially as an antidote to fear. Can you say more about that? Well, the legend, and you'll enjoy this because it's right up your alley. <laughs> the legend is that the Buddha first taught loving-kindness meditation to this group of monks after he had originally taught some other kind of meditation and sent them off to a particular forest to meditate in. And it happened to be that that forest was haunted. It had tree spirits in it. And they didn't like the presence of the monks. They were very resentful. And so they tried to frighten them away. And they appeared as like these ghoulish visions and made terrible sounds. And there were these apparitions. And sure enough, the monks became terrified and they ran away. They ran back to the Buddha. And they said, oh, please, Buddha, send us to a different forest. And he said, I'm going to send you back to the same forest, but I'm going to give you the only protection you'll need. And that was the first teaching of loving-kindness practice. And he said, don't just recite it in a kind of empty way. Actually practice it when you go back there. And so they went back, and as these stories all end so happily, the tree spirits were so taken by the beautiful energy of the loving-kindness coming their way that they decided they actually quite liked the monks there. And they'd feed them and take care of them and so on. So not all real life stories end so happily, you know, but those ones always do. And that was the first teaching. So whether or not you believe in tree spirits or you're going to go there, (laughs) it seems clear he taught it as the antidote to fear. And energetically, you can feel that. Another mental attribute that works with anger and fear, which are considered the same state, just two different forms, 
is interest. You know, if you're really angry at somebody, you just want to push them away and dismiss them. Or fear is the same thing, except it's the opposite movement. It's like recoiling instead of pushing. But it's striking out against what's happening, trying to declare it to be untrue. Whereas if we have a state of love, we're also kind of curious. It's like, huh, what did you mean by that? Or why do you feel that? Or why are you so freaked out? Where are you going? You know, it's like openness and coming closer and paying attention in a different way. And so it's kind of energetically the opposite than the, the withdrawal of fear. And it makes sense that we almost replace it, you know, the fear with the sense of connection. How would that work in an a- average life? Like, I'm afraid of climate change in the kind of world my son's going to grow up in, or I'm claustrophobic, so don't like MRIs and elevators, or I'm walking in our backyard and the light's gone out and it's um, afraid of the dark. How would loving kindness very practically help me in any one of those moments? I don't know that I, you know, if I was trying to deal with a phobia, I would use loving kindness as my first remedy, probably mindfulness. But I think it helps in the sense that you don't consider yourself a broken person, you know, like damaged beyond redemption because you have fear. So it's all those after effects, it's like the aftershocks, the judgment and self-judgment and the condemnation and the shame and and all of that. That's the things we tend to heap upon our already pained estate. That's where it would come in so that we weren't doing so much of that and and realizing we're all afraid of something, you know. And I just did a, a podcast interview with Sonny Ruche with my teacher because he has a book coming out. And he was telling the story, which I've heard him tell many times, about how he's afraid of heights. And I said, I can't really believe you're afraid of heights because I'm afraid of heights. And there was like this, almost this kind of home movie that was making the rounds for a while of him and his brother going back to the village where they were born and grew up for like the first six years or so of their lives. And everyone was writing to me saying, Look at those beaming smiles. Look at those glorious vistas. And all I could see was that little crumbly path that looked like it was washed out in the rain. <laughs> if your foot slipped, you'd go down like 90 million feet, you know, <laughs> to some cavern and never be seen again. Uh, literally, it's all I could see was that path. I thought, I'm never going there. Never. <laughs> never. But, you know, was that painful for me to say I was afraid of heights? No. But would it have been some years ago? Yes. I would have been so embarrassed. I'm like, who cares? You know. So I, I think it's different. It's a different kind of fear because we're also afraid of so much that someone wants to find bhikkhu, the word that's usually translated as monk, as something about worthy fear. You know, someone who knows what it makes sense to be afraid of and doesn't get misled into the things we're taught to be afraid of, like kindness, giving too much. You should be afraid of climate effects, you know climate warming or whatever we call it these days. We should be all afraid of that. But that doesn't mean that sort of overwhelmed by fear makes any sense in terms of choosing action. Maybe another way in which love is an antidote to fear is that if you're stuck in anxiety about climate change or really anything, being helpful to somebody else, which is a form of love, again, broadly understood, can get you out of your head. Absolutely. I mean, when I was last teaching in a large group setting. It was uh, March 2020, <laughs> March 9th, 2020, to be exact. And it was at the Rubin Museum in New York. And at the Rubin, as you know, the situation is that you sit in the in the audience until you're introduced, and then you go up on the stage. So this was like their uh, 
Monday meditation class, and a lot of people would come every week. And, and this woman was sitting next to me, and she was terrified, you know? And it was such an anxious time in New York, and people were starting to get sick, and you didn't quite know exactly how. And it was really, it was before everything shut down, obviously. And she said to me, you know, I almost didn't come. And then I came, and, you know, I'm so anxious. I don't know what to do. And, and I said, well, you know, there are these kind of breathing techniques that you can use where the basic principle is that if your out-breath is longer than your in-breath, the parasympathetic nervous system will start taking over from the sympathetic nervous system, and you'll chill, you know. Uh, very likely, your blood pressure could go down, and things just ease, and people use this for panic attacks and so on. So. She wasn't at all interested in that. So I said, well, you know, this is loving kindness meditation where if you do that meditation, you'll, you'll come upon a very profound sense of connection with others and you won't feel so alone sort of doing battle with life. And she wasn't interested in that either. So then I looked at her and I said, is there anyone you can help? And she lit up. She got really radiant. She said, you know, I have this neighbor and they're elderly and Maybe I could slip a note under their door and see if I could help them with groceries. And I thought, look at that. That's so interesting. You know, and then I left New York and haven't really, I mean, I've been back, you know, but I haven't really moved back there in, in any real sense. But I, I, you know, I witnessed so many friends and I saw and heard so many stories of like, I've lived in this building for 12 years and never even knew my neighbor's names. And now we all keep track of one another and we're trying to make sure we're okay. And, I mean, that may be long gone too, you know, but there was this little period of people really turning to help one another, which was really important. Hopefully this connection is appropriate, but it kind of wings us back to this, I think, this trope, this misunderstanding that you need to love yourself before you love others. Because what you see here is that the act of loving others, and again, we're talking in a broad, down-to-earth no-nonsense way, the act of caring enough about other people in order to help them can remind you of your own worthiness. And so I think there is a connection between loving yourself and loving others, a sort of a double helix, but you you can access it from either side. You can access it from the other love side and you can access it from the self-love side. Am I thinking about this correctly? Yeah, I absolutely agree. And because any sort of generosity, even if it's fleeting, brings us back to the place where we are whole, where we're not at a loss by that act of giving, that we're not left bereft or with less even. We're left with more, actually, because of the generosity and, and the depth of the connection and so on. So it may be very, very fleeting, but it's there. There's something about that return that, yeah, I can give. You know, I am of worth or I'm, I'm basically okay, you know. Even And I think it, it does function that way. And it's, it's very important to appreciate that. Let me finish by asking a little bit about you. You recently turned 70. <laughs> <laughs> Did I really? Oh, my God. <laughs> and you've been very open about, you know, the, the many struggles in your life. And I think there's, it's not a coincidence that you're the person who asked the Dalai Lama about self-hatred. Mm-hmm. When you see aspects of your personality arising in your own mind these days, after all these years of meditation, after all these years of being alive, how does it go? Are you able to muster 
with some reliability, self-love, self-compassion, whatever we want to call it? I think so. Yeah, I do. I mean, in that regard, I entered that pandemic period. I mean, I'm still very sequestered in a lot of ways, but not as much as I have been for years. And I entered sort of really not knowing. And I feel like I drew upon all the skills I'd learned in 50 years of practice. And they were there. They were completely present for me and made a difference. I think that one aspect of self-compassion, which I referred to before, that is very meaningful to me is this understanding that I'm not alone. Because it feels so alone, you know? Like, can you think, I said that, you know, in front of all those people? <laughs> um, did I just say that about turning 70? Oh, no. <laughs> like, but you're never alone. And realizing this is human existence and it's frailty. And one of my colleagues who very often when we would teach together physically would say, everyone's just doing the best that they can. Everyone's just doing the best that they can. It would really annoy me because <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the Dan Harris school, although I'm a neophyte in the Dan Harris school. <laughs> Cynicism and skepticism, really, you're a baby, but and I think, come on, you know, like, but of course she was right. Everyone is doing the best that they can because if we had less ignorance and less delusion and so on, we would do better. And it was only when I, I sort of saw uh, my, a quote from Maya Angelou who said, in some way, like, when you know better, you do better, that I thought, oh, yeah, that, that's a more palatable form for me than everyone's just doing the best that they can. And I think it's true. And I don't doubt it. I don't, I don't go through fits about it. Like, yeah, I think that's really right. I did the best that I could. And, you know, things can be hard. Like I, like I just finished two books, and that means a public presentation of what I believe and what I care about. And not everyone may think I have anything left to say, which is a reasonable criticism. You know, we'll see. I think that I am a little spooked about turning 70 in, in the sense that it just doesn't seem real. You know, how can it be real? But nonetheless, you know, here it is, kind of far out. It happens. I remember when somebody, a friend of mine, who's very, very, very phobic about dying, was we were in some lucky situation with the Dalai Lama, you know, which was very private. And she was telling him about that. And he said, well, as a Buddhist, he, he reflects on dying every day of his life in his meditation. And she said, do you think it'll help when you die? And he said, I don't know. I hope so. <laughs> so I'm kind of left with that. Do you reflect on death every day? No, but I should. <laughs> I mean, I know I should. I do sometimes. It's just another flipping of a page on the calendar, but I can imagine when you get to a round number like 70, it starts to feel more real. It's very real. I mean, there's so many elements to it. Death and the imminence of death, you know, relatively speaking, is certainly part of it, but there's so many other parts of it. I just thought, oh, well, you know, someday it would be fun to go to journalism school, which is something I always wanted to do for some reason. I don't know why. And I thought, no, never. <laughs> I'm not going to suddenly undertake like an entire new professional training, you know, like if anything, I should learn Pali and Sanskrit. And it's just interesting watching things fall away, even before you come to the prospect of dying, you know, when it all falls away. I can imagine there would be a positive way to look at this. I have an uncle who upon turning 60, was asked how he felt, and he said, off the hook. Oh, that's great. Yeah, No, I definitely feel that. I mean, it's, it's, it's a kind of ease of being, you know, like, it's sort of a Dzogchen teaching anyways. It's Tibetan teaching, like, 
Who cares? It's one of the things they teachers say. Who cares? Now, it would be easy to misconstrue that as nihilism. Totally. It'd be very easy. You know, I was thinking, that's probably a secret teaching. I don't know. I just... <laughs> <laughs> How do you do it? How do you apply who cares in a healthy way and not a nihilistic way? Well, I think we'll go back to, since you have a book coming out eventually. <laughs> <laughs> who cares? Who cares? <laughs> I mean, what do we look at to care? We have to care. But what do we look at? It can't necessarily be conventional standards, because that's heartbreaking. You never know what circumstance is going to arise. And it has to be like, did I say what I really needed to say? Or was I compelled? I mean, the best books, the best work comes out of being compelled. You have to say it. And you don't even know why, but you have to say it. And did you did you do that? Did you honor that? And were you really as present as you possibly could be? And the Dalai Lama once said in this panel that People were always dragging him to look at things like architecture and paintings and stuff like that, and saying, oh, isn't it beautiful, isn't it beautiful? And he said, in Tibet, we believe a work of art is beautiful depending on what happens in the mind of the creator in creating it. Like, did they get more enlightened? Did they get more wise? Did they get more compassionate? Then it's a beautiful work. Let me ask you uh, in closing here the, the question I habitually ask. Which is, is there anything I should have asked you today that I didn't ask? Oh, gosh. You can ask me how in the world I thought I had anything left to say that I would write two more new books. (laughs) When are these books coming out? One is coming out April 11th, 2023. And one is coming out, I think, sometime in October 2023. And what are they? The April 11th book is called Real Life, because there I was in the pandemic and uh, home in Barry and... I watched, actually, I've now watched it many, many times on YouTube, this program called Saturday Night Seder, which was the Seder of the year because no one was going anywhere. I learned a lot, and it was incredibly beautiful and funny and outrageous. And so I watched it that year. I watched it the next year. I watched it many times. But anyway, the message that reminded me of what I already knew, which was that The word Egypt symbolically means a narrow place. So symbolically, not in terms of geopolitics, which would be tricky to get into, but in terms of the symbolism, the movement of the exodus is the movement from constriction and narrowness and basically being uptight to being expansive and open. And so what is that movement? So I go back, of course, to Buddhism and talk about that and, uh, So that's the arc of the book. And then the other book is a gift book. It's the first time I'll have like a little illustrated book. Will you come back on when these books come out? I would love to. It would be thrilling. Thank you for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. May all beings be loving. Thanks again to Sharon. Thank you as well to everybody who works so hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, and Lauren Smith. And a reminder to hear my full TED Talk, check out the video on TED.com or head over to the TED Talks Daily podcast, wherever you're listening to this podcast. They post a new idea there every day so you can listen to some of the other great speakers from the conference, and there were many. We'll see you all on Wednesday for a brand new episode. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, 
Uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.